You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. 40 years ago, this is Emeritus Rex with Rabbi Ruben Yeshua Pukko of Beth Israel Bavarin. Last we spoke, Rabbi Pukko, you were on an island in Greece. And since you've come back, there has been a lot of fast and furious activity in the legal sphere here in the United States. But as it is, let's start with Eretz Yisrael and the situation there. There was an operation this week in Jenin that, according to the Israelis, was extremely successful and discovered in that refugee camp hundreds and hundreds of apartments where they were passing explosives, bombs, weapons, chemical weapons even. And this, therefore, was uh, a, a, a success. There was... Uh, in response to this operation in Janine, there was Hamas launched rockets to Steyrot, which Baruch Hashem were in- intercepted by the Iron Dome. And also, in direct connection, in some terrible way, a madman, 20-year-old, rammed his car into a uh, a number of innocent millions standing at, I guess it was a bus area, and then crawled out of the window of his smash car and started running around trying to stab whoever he could. Obviously, our tefillos are with any of the nifzoyim. Obviously, our hearts are in the place of tzioyim. Let's talk about what 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 generated this type of reaction. What, why did they go into Janine in the first place? Well, again, uh, this has been a particularly deadly year. Uh, dozens of Israelis have been killed in terror attacks and shootings. A lot of it coming from Janine. Listen, a lot of different factors are at play. The weakness of the Palestinian Authority in asserting control there. Aggressive attempts by uh, Hamas to create uh, a base in the West Bank by funding and supplying uh, Islamic Jihad, which is really what this mostly was. It was against Islamic Jihad. And uh, Israel felt it necessary to go in. In response to the you know the last several months, painful months of losses uh, at the hands of terrorists coming from Janine and elsewhere, but a lot from Janine, they found huge uh, weapons storehouses. They were able to arrest uh, many terrorists with minimal casualties. To the last moments of his of of the incursion, not a single Israeli had lost their life. Tragically, the end. One soldier did. Being investigated as possibly the result of what's called a shachim or, or friendly fire. I, I read I read that his rifle butt was sticking out of some sort of uh, corner area, and they thought it was right. It was a mistaken identity, but a really remarkable skill and ethics uh, on display. And uh, Israel did what it had to do. Uh, you know whether the impact is long lasting or only short term. Time will tell. You know, listen, we're, we're what, the 18th year of Abbas's four-year term. He's very weak. Uh, people are anticipating what happens when he's off the scene, whether the uh, West Bank will descend into absolute chaos and anarchy, who would be his successor, uh, how successful will Hamas be at asserting uh, control there. Uh, right now, they're playing the game of attacking Israel from there so that their own piece of the world isn't overly affected. But Hamas is, is certainly there. Islamic Jihad is there, and the Iranians are stirring this up. The Iranians are convinced that uh, that Israel's weak. My impression 
from the declarations that were made after the operation, the declarations from various, not only security forces, Shin Bet and, and the Israeli army, is that although the extent of what they discovered might have been surprised, they pretty much knew what was going on. What this operation revealed is that Israel knows everything. And they knew it for a while. If they know that, even if there hadn't been a spate of terrorism, since, you know, they know that they're getting ready to, to, to launch this at some time. Why haven't they gone in earlier? The only answer I could think of is that there is this tension that if we go in prematurely or we go in, even though we know it's there, we risk the type of terror attacks like the one in Tel Aviv in uh, mass. Listen, I don't know if the considerations are strategic or political or tactical. I don't know. Uh, I don't know what determines the uh, uh, the timing of, of incursions like this. Because you're right. Obviously, you know it could have happened a month or two or three ago. But listen, they finally did what they had to do. Uh, the situation was getting worse. But again, there was a shooting just this morning in Kidumim. An Israeli lost his life in Kidumim. You know, people will say this provoked that, that provoked this. Truth is, if you look at the, you know, you step back from the immediate uh, and you look at the general scope of things, uh, they don't need a lot of provocation to do what they do. So I I don't know what's a provocation, what's not, what's revenge, what's, you know, the West likes to talk about a cycle of violence. I I don't think it's a cycle of violence. I think that there is um, a clear, fanatical unwillingness to accept a Jewish state. They are convinced for religious and political reasons that killing Jews, even if it means they lose their own life, is the way to go, is the way to glory. Uh, also, there are financial incentives. Uh, you know, listen, it's hard for normal, civilized, ethical people to understand the bloodlust of, uh, of killers. But uh, the intense hatred, the intense desire to, to kill is, uh, is something that Israel's dealt with for 75 years. But I know that um, here in the, in America, in New Jersey, and other places I've lived, I've worked and had very friendly relations. And I, of course, I wasn't worried that this fellow who happens to be a Muslim uh, was going to break into my house. I let him into my house to do electrical work. We talked, we schmooze. We talked about the difference in halal and hashgachas. And I don't give it a second thought. Can you imagine living in Eretz Yisrael? that we daven for, that there's such a tension that any person they might see... But the fact is, the, on a one-to-one, there is enormous amount of contact. I don't know, what I forget, 50% of the pharmacists in Israel are Arab, uh, 30% of the doctors. It's uh, it, it's a common thing. I mean, uh, you know, uh, if I remember correctly, when Yitzhak Rabin was uh, assassinated and taken to the hospital, he was treated by an Arab doctor. And Yigal Amir at the same time was being treated by a Jewish doctor. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, it's commonplace in Israel. The inter- There's a lot of contact that goes on. I agree. When, when I went there to Israel and I went to the Rami Levy near Efrat, it w- almost every person working in that Rami Levy was an Arab. Yeah. Um, when I was trying to find Kugel, it was a, quite a problem. We had to play around with our phones and show exactly what the Kugel I was looking for. They were familiar with it. I guess it hadn't come there yet and we couldn't find it. And it was very funny as we talked about the different types of Kugel. All I'm saying is when these events occur, it really damages the structure of these interpersonal relationships. Absolutely. 
And and even though, yes, you, you, you forget about it, but then there's something still in the back of your mind wondering. So even though the pharmacist, the guy in the supermarket, the, the guy is showing you, his Hebrew is flawless. There's still something there that these terrorists really, unfortunately, uh, uh, kindle within every single Jewish, whether they're religious or not, their attitude towards their Arab neighbors. And that's really, <laughs> that, that that's a tension. And unfortunately, you know, th- that's part of the thing which I think breeds the hatred. The re- reality is that because of policy decisions made 20 and 30 years ago, Israel finds itself in a, in a situation that is not easily susceptible to resolution. What could Israel do? Is there a consensus in Israel to retake Gaza? No. Is there a consensus in Israel to reassert full control over the uh, refugee camps and uh, places under a, a current Palestinian Authority rule? No. There are certainly some hardliners who would advocate for that. It, it, you know, because of the Oslo years and then the Gaza withdrawal, Israel finds itself with very limited options, where no matter what alternative you present, the status quo doesn't seem so bad. In contrast, as difficult as the status quo is, I think another element in the decision to go in was the sense among too many who live in the West Bank, and it's a small minority, but still too many, that they had to take the law into their own hands, as we saw after, uh, you know, the the terror attack uh, a couple of weeks ago, where Israelis went into uh, Palestinian villages to revenge attacks. And I think that that's a, a situation that's intolerable. People take the law into their own hands. But in order to avoid that, they need to get a sense from their own government Mm-hmm. an army that someone is looking out for them. And uh, hopefully, at least in the short term, the Israeli incursion Janine will send that message, at least to Israelis, that somebody that, that, that they don't have to take the law into their own hands. It sounds really, you know, on, on many levels, this government that uh, Netanyahu is, is leading has done a lot of uh, correct moves in terms of security, in terms of understanding the psyche of the country. Uh, and yet I think today, on Shabbat is I think there is some sort of huge protest planned in Tel Aviv as well. I think they're setting something on fire. I don't know. You know, using this period to, I guess, sow discord among Jews is so ironic and terrible. Listen, everyone is, there's a lot of feeling of exhaustion over this judicial reform issue. And I think persistence in, the stubborn persistence in pursuing the most expansive agenda of judicial reform is misguided. Bibi keeps contradicting himself. He gave an interview to the Wall Street Journal last week where he said that the override would, would, would be dispensed with. Now he's saying it won't be. Bibi's caught between a rock and a hard place between the demands of his own coalition and what he knows is best for the country, not just in terms of, of internal uh, political and social reality, but also what's best for the, the country on the world stage. He's caught between opposing forces and and he's burdened with some reckless voices in, inside his coalition. And he has very little maneuverability at this point. Yes. Well, it's a, it's almost a labyrinth of accusations, one against the other, with media playing a very large role where you have the television police commissioner resigning with, in a public video describing how he has been browbeaten in order to enforce extremely harsh measures against the protesters. And, of course, he resigned because he could no longer function in such a way. And because of that, that unleashed 
these protests, which again, disrupt everyone's life uh, in various communities. It is terrible to see the image of water cannons being used against Jews. Uh, on the other hand, this, if we talk about the sinas chinam, uh, or maybe it's sinas, whatever, let's say pure sinna, it's definitely on display in Eretz Yisrael. And that is something I think that we, we, we bemoan. And as you say, Rabbi, whenever, whenever you push an extreme position, the other party will push an extreme position back. Yeah. And what you're left with is these terrible imageries. These, you know, Janine should prove, shouldn't, I mean, we're sitting here in North America. Shouldn't the Janine operation prove how much we need each other and how we have to try to live together? Listen, when you, when you live in Israel, too many on, on either side of the political divide are not just interested in securing what they feel they need to lead, you know, a, a comfortable and secure life, but they're also driven by a desire to deny the other side uh, a victory. Uh, that's punitive, and that and that's where it gets dangerous. Uh, you know, the, uh, the some of the religious right want to prove that they're ascendant and want the left to suffer a defeat in terms of the power they may have. The members of the left want to make sure that the old Israel still lives of, of a secular-dominated culture. So it's a, it's a problem. I wish we had better news to Merit Israel, but again, our hearts and minds are there in our tefillos, of course, especially today. A lot of things happen over on our side in terms of decisions that were reached by the Supreme Court. You know, we've talked a lot about, you know, the incredible Trump presidency. And now we are seeing really the the repercussions of this court and the massive change that is occurring to the American legal system, or at least the legal world. I, I, don't, I don't know if it's a massive change. I mean, uh, you know, everyone knew that. I, I, I was referring to also the overturning of Roe last year. And then you add... Roe wasn't overturned. I mean... Yes, it was, but it doesn't mean abortion was made illegal. Abortion wasn't made illegal by the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court returned it to the states where it always belonged. In other words, the left used that as an indictment of the Supreme Court and as some kind of new uh, era of misogyny. When in fact what's occurred is that state by state, New rules are being passed, some very uh, liberal and some very restrictive, but that's where it belongs. And very often the people who go too far in restricting are losing elections. This had been a, a an issue for years. Scalia generally uh, in, in, always in the minority and uh, was always arguing and pushing for many of the things that we're seeing happening now, whether it was... The, whether you want to call it the overturning of Roe. Right, right, Dobbs, right. The religious right. freedom, by the way, people didn't read the, the the one on religious freedom with that fellow who wanted Shabbat off, the uh, the Christian who wanted who wanted Saturday off, I think it was. The point was, that was a nine to nothing. Right, decision. that was the unanimous decision, yes. To, that was the unanimous to, decision. By the way, again, he was a religious Christian who refused to do business on Sunday. Right. And because of Jeff Bezos and because of the the pressure of the postal workers, even in rural Pennsylvania, to have to deliver products. Uh, no, but it also they- had to do with overturning a Supreme Court decision that was clearly misguided, that limited religious accommodation in the most extreme way, yes. and it just expanded it to a much more normal 
and also common sense understanding of the legislation. The legislation is the Civil Rights Legislation of 1964, uh, which, in other words, the Supreme Court had ruled earlier or had allowed the definition to be hardship on the part of the employer. Undue hardship. It could be even even that to have to shift around people and have to pay a little bit more for another guy to come in to take this guy's shift was enough of a consideration to fire a person. So the Supreme Court normalized that. On the decision on affirmative action, I mean, when Sandra Day O'Connor wrote the decision 22 years ago, she said in 25 years, hope it won't be necessary. because it's clearly it's clearly actually racist, and, and and if you read the opinions written by the three dissenters, they're insane. I mean, they could they they literally make up studies. I mean, listen, there are, there are enough reasonable African Americans, conservative African Americans, who have made the case that they have been deeply harmed by affirmative action because it assumes that their credentials are questionable, as they got a free ride due to affirmative action, when in fact they deserved it on personal merit. Personal merit, and I have to explain why this is so vital to the Jewish community. Personal merit was the reason America was a golden exile for us. Because if you're not judged by your religious background or the color of your skin, and you can make it on your own merit through your own skill and hard work, that's all the Jew ever wanted. And affirmative action was the beginning of a slippery slope away from, from a meritocracy. And now you have explicit, explicit uh, proclamations that we should deal not with equality of opportunity, but with equity and, and equal results. All of this undermines the standing of the Jew in, in America. You know, so the 1970s, when affirmative action first came up as a big issue, the Jewish community took a principled position against it, but quickly changed. And they, and, and they gave into the liberal consensus. And again, affirmative action can mean a lot of things. People were always making things between affirmative action and quotas and this and that. But the discrimination against Asian students who were the new Jews, the discrimination against Asian students at the University of North Carolina and at Harvard was egregious. I mean, it was outlandish. And, and, and what's so misguided about this whole subject is that this should be a catalyst for people questioning K through 12 education in America. I mean, the reason affirmative action is necessary, you know, is because, or, or thought to be necessary by many, is because of the complete and total failure of this public school system. If the public school system was successful, right, you wouldn't have this as an issue. You'd have enough African-Americans who, by their own merit and SAT scores, would be getting into the best schools. But the schools have failed them. They have failed them. And it is a lot, there's a lot of blame to go around. It's obviously, you know, a, a, public schools are a government institution, so the blame goes to government. It goes to the teachers' union that have a stranglehold in places like Chicago over the government. And, uh, and, 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 and this is a failure of the public school system. I think what it also did was generate not just a, uh, a a mistrust over some African-American or Black person who had received a degree from a higher institution. It also, in many cases, resulted in despondency and the uh, giving up of many Black students when they were in these institutions, when they realized that this was just too tough of a... Right, you're, you're pushing kids into institutions where they are not necessarily on a path to success. Well, if they went to a state school, 
they would be even, much better. Or even not an Ivy League school, or even a school. Right. Obviously, what gives a person the tools to success is confidence in their own abilities and teachers that are willing to understand that. When someone is clearly not on the level of everyone else, for whatever reason there is. It's devastating. Um, the reaction of Katanji Brown and her liberal colleagues on the bench, including Alana Kagan, as, uh, I'm sure as well, really, you know, they, they, they talk about terrible history and that the reality is in America. I think most Americans really reject that argument when it means who is going to be getting into a certain institution. And as you said, the Asian Americans were being prejudiced against. They weren't able to get in despite their high test scores. And the case, I think most Americans would agree with it. It's interesting, again, as I point out, that the, the liberals are really in, up in arms about this court. Biden says this court is crazy, right? Biden says this court is not normal. But again, I start with what I, what I said before a couple of minutes ago. This is a pretty good legacy for that nut, Trump, that the court has righted the wrong. Absolutely. But again, it's, it's also proof that he can't be president again. Because the only reason he was able to do this is because he basically formed out Supreme Court selection process to responsible adults. Right. His his own, uh, you know, and, and, and you know, he, he listened to other people on this. Does anyone think that anyone normal would work for Trump in a second term? Right. That he's, you know, he'll put Giuliani on the Supreme Court or, you know, uh, whoever. You well, know. I'm not sure if he's going to be able to withstand the, the questioning. What about do you have anything to say about the 303 case? I think, I think it was a wise decision. I I think it's against the law not to serve clients who are gay. But it shouldn't be against the law to refuse to involve yourself uh, in things which go against your own values. So if they come in and ask for a dozen bagels, of course you have to sell it. If they ask you to design a website or make a cake for their gay marriage, you're allowed to say, I don't like to do that. I didn't read the decision, but you're making a, you're making a very interesting point between creativity and your own essence Right. Or a product that you happen to buy from a from a warehouse. You cannot discriminate against human beings based on their race, their religion, their sexual uh, preferences, their identity. However, you cannot be compelled to provide a creative service that seems to legitimate or validate choices that offend your religious sensibilities. That you know, that's an issue that's now come up with. Yeshiva University uh, with their with the gay club and everything else, and we'll see you know if it gets to the Supreme Court how the Supreme Court will rule in that case. That's obviously a little more complicated because they're not chartered as a religious institution. But um, I think it was a good decision. You know, distinguishing between acting in a bigoted manner towards an individual or and being coerced to be a a partner in uh, uh, celebrating that which you feel is wrong. I did hear a voice from a rabbinical colleague raised some concern because what will stop someone, you know, who let's say you, a yeshiva or some Jewish website wants to uh, create, how about the Emeritus Rex website that we were going to create a tremendous super interactive one promoting this type of rabbinic discussions that we have. And we go to a web designer who says, you know, I hate Judaism. It goes, goes against my religion because my religion teaches me that Jews are the devil and that they are the blood-sucking uh, scourge of humanity. What's, what, what's going to be when we're on the receiving end? 
that, that argument didn't seem strong to me. You find somebody else. You know, I, I, if you wave enough cash to people, you'll find someone. In, in, in the old time America, you knew there were certain people you went to and certain people you didn't. I, I think that this is something that is not going to ricochet in any negative way towards no. us. Again, it's, 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 it's important to put into the moral consciousness of the, of people in the United States about how terrible having these type of attitudes are, but we aren't going to eliminate them. I mean, listen, there are different definitions of affirmative action. If affirmative action meant that you go into, uh, high schools and you recruit and offer assistance to kids in, you know, in 11th and 12th grade, in their college admission, and you go out of your way to recruit them, and you go out of your way to help them. No one would disagree with that. But when you start setting up a system that clearly, you know, creates a quota that clearly disadvantages an Asian, the Asian student, I mean, you can't have that. To go ahead and aggressively recruit in underserved populations, if you go ahead and you give some deference to people with uh, particularly, particular and specific hardships in their own lives. No one's against that. What, 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 what is against is this attempt to go ahead and, and, you know, to create a net, you know, a mathematical balance sheet between how many are allowed in and how many aren't. I think it was Texas where they said that they, and they created a wonderful racial balance with this. They said, we're going to take the top 25% of all these high schools. And, and it worked out fine. You know, and again, there are a lot of people in America who are poor who are not black. And there are a lot of, you know, African-Americans who had every advantage that the wealthiest white had. So this whole idea of race being the singular criteria is just so it's just wrong. I think that it was definitely a no brainer that we, were, we weren't going to get a forgiveness on the student loans. Well, I mean, he himself said it was unconstitutional a year before he did it. I mean, it's insanity. I mean, the liberals are have gone bananas in, in, in assuming that the Supreme Court's there to make law. It's it's not. I mean, this was welfare for the upper middle class. The whole program is insane. And especially, it was it was the use of the Heroes Act. Yeah, it was such a perversion of what it was supposed to be. Nancy Pelosi, who now denounces the Supreme Court herself, said, "You can't do this." Everyone knows you can't do this. You know, it, it seems to me, and I think I might have heard this in the blog sphere. This was just a ploy to uh, to get uh, behind Biden the youth vote. Yeah, that's all it is. It's a naked vote buying scheme, right? So this way, we he could say, "I was your champion." It was the, I wanted to try to get right. you, uh, and this way, all the the twenty one year olds and the ones who can vote for him uh, who are suffering under student debt. Where really the problem is the immense price that colleges demand. From their students. The two institutions in America that have suffered the worst inflation over the last 30, 40 years are hospitals and universities. And the one thing they have in common is government subsidies. Government subsidies will boost the price of something because people can now afford to pay more because the government's helping. So all the Pell grants and all the grants for university and Medicaid and everything else, it just distorts the market. And and what one could say in the hospitals, although you hear horror stories, at least there, there are many people who are being saved and being helped. I think so often in the universities, what we're hearing about is courses that are meaningless and, 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 and people that are dropping out. The universities are really not serving their clientele. It's one thing when they're propping up 
the hospitals, because there's obviously something wrong with our, in many ways, with our healthcare system, which I'm not sure the way to solve it. But this should be a wake-up call for the universities, I believe. And instead, I think what they're going to do is fight. And what we're going to have, again, is a lot of uh, noise without people really understanding. So I guess the only thing I could say is happy trails and a birchas preda to Alan Arkin. Oh, yeah. So take everybody. Be well. Catch you next time. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 